200,000 francs reward. And the proceeds of the sale, I added, are to be paid over at once. The papers say that the princess will have her money tomorrow. Only, frankly, I fail to see the connection between this story, which you have told very well, and the puzzling sentence. Lupin did not condescend to reply. We had been walking down the street in which I live and had passed some four or five houses when he stepped off the pavement and began to examine a block of flats not of the latest construction, which looked as if it contained a large number of tenants. According to my calculations, he said, this is where the signals come from, probably from that open window. On the third floor? Yes. He went to the portress and asked her, does one of your tenants happen to be acquainted with Baron Repstein? Why, of course, replied the woman. We have Mr. Lavenue here, such a nice gentleman. He's the Baron's secretary and agent. I look after his flat. And can we see him? See him? The poor gentleman is very ill. Ill? He's been ill a fortnight, ever since the trouble with the Baroness. He came home the next day with a temperature and took to his bed. But he gets up, surely. Ah, that I can't say. How do you mean you can't say? No, his doctor won't let anyone into his room. He took my key from me. Who did? The doctor. He comes and sees to his wants two or three times a day. He left the house only twenty minutes ago. An old gentleman with a gray beard and spectacles walks quite bent. But where are you going, sir? I'm going up. Show me the way said Lupin, with his foot on the stairs. It's the third floor, isn't it, on the left? But I mustn't, moaned the portress, running after him. Besides, I haven't the key. The doctor... They climbed the three flights, one behind the other. On the landing, Lupin took a tool from his pocket and, disregarding the woman's protests, inserted it in the lock. The door yielded almost immediately. We went in. At the back of a small dark room, we saw a streak of light filtering through a door that had been left ajar. Lupin ran across the room and, on reaching the threshold, gave a cry. Too late! Ah, oh, hang it all! The portress fell on her knees as though fainting. I entered the bedroom in my turn and saw a man lying half-dressed on the carpet with his legs drawn up under him, his arms contorted and his face quite white, an emaciated, fleshless face with the eyes still staring in terror and the mouth twisted into a hideous grin. He's dead, said Lupin, after a rapid examination. But why? I exclaimed. There's no trace of blood. Yes, yes there is, replied Lupin, pointing to two or three drops that showed on the chest through the open shirt. Look, they must have taken him by the throat with one hand, and pricked him to the heart with the other. I say pricked because really the wound can't be seen, it suggests a hole made by a very long needle. He looked on the floor, all around the corpse. There was nothing to attract his attention except a little pocket mirror, the little mirror with which Mr. Lavenue had amused himself by making the sunbeams dance through space. But suddenly, as the portress was breaking into lamentations and calling for help, Lupin flung himself on her and shook her. Stop that! Listen to me. You can call out later. Listen to me and answer me. It is most important. Mr. Lavenue had a friend living in this street, had he not? On the same side, to the right, an intimate friend? Yes. 
a friend whom he used to meet at the cafe in the evening and with whom he exchanged the illustrated papers. Yes. Was the friend an Englishman? Yes. What's his name? Mr. Hargrove. Where does he live? At number 92 in this street. One word more. Had that old doctor been attending him long? No, I did not know him. He came on the evening when Mr. Lavernu was taken ill. Without another word, Lupin dragged me away once more, ran down the stairs, and, once in the street, turned to the right, which took us past my flat again. Four doors further, he stopped at number 92, a small, low-storied house, of which the ground floor was occupied by the proprietor of a dram shop, who stood smoking in his doorway, next to the entrance passage. Lupin asked if Mr. Hargrove was at home. Mr. Hargrove went out about half an hour ago, said the publican. He seemed very much excited and took a taxicab, thing he doesn't often do. And do you know where he was going? Well, there's no secret about it. He shouted it loud enough. Prefecture of police, is what he said to the driver. Lupin was himself just hailing a taxi when he changed his mind, and I heard him mutter, What's the good? He's got too much start on us. He asked if anyone called after Mr. Hargrove had gone. Yes, an old gentleman with a gray beard and spectacles. He went up to Mr. Hargrove's, rang the bell, and went away again. I'm much obliged, said Lupin, touching his hat. He walked away slowly without speaking to me, wearing a thoughtful air. There was no doubt that the problem struck him as very difficult, and that he saw none too clearly in the darkness through which he seemed to be moving with such certainty. He himself, for that matter, confessed to me, these are cases that require much more intuition than reflection, but this one, I may tell you, is well worth taking pains about. We had now reached the boulevards. Lupin entered a public reading room and spent a long time consulting the last fortnight's newspapers. Now and again he mumbled, Yes, yes, of course. It's only a guess, but it explains everything. Well, a guess that answers every question is not far from being the truth. It was now dark. We dined at a little restaurant, and I noticed that Lupin's face became gradually more animated. His gestures were more decided. He recovered his spirits, his liveliness. When we left, during the walk which he made me take along the boulevard Haussmann toward Baron Repstein's house, he was the real Lupin of the great occasions, the Lupin who had made up his mind to go in and win. We slackened our pace just short of the Rue de Courcelles. Baron Repstein lived on the left-hand side, between the street and the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, in a three-storied private house of which we could see the front, decorated with columns and caryatids. Stop, said Lupin suddenly. What is it? Another proof to confirm my supposition. What proof? I see nothing. I do, and that's enough. He turned up the collar of his coat, lowered the brim of his soft hat, and said, by Jove, it'll be a stiff fight. Go to bed, my friend. I'll tell you about my expedition tomorrow, if it doesn't cost me my life. What are you talking about? Oh, I know what I'm saying. I'm risking a lot. First of all, getting arrested, which isn't much. Next, getting killed, which is worse. But he gripped my shoulder. But there's a third thing I'm risking, which is getting hold of two millions. And once I possess a capital of two million, I'll show people what I can do. Good night, old chap, and if you never see me again, he spouted Musset's lines, plant a willow by my grave, the weeping willow that I love.
I walked away. Three minutes later, I am continuing the narrative as he told it to me the next day. Three minutes later, Lupin rang at the door of the Hotel Repstein. Is Monsieur le Baron at home? Yes, replied the butler, examining the intruder with an air of surprise. But Mr. le Baron does not see people as late as this. Does Monsieur le Baron know of the murder of Monsieur Lavenu, his land agent? Certainly. Well, please tell Monsieur le Baron that I have come about the murder and that there is not a moment to lose. A voice called from above. Show the gentleman up, Antoine. In obedience to this peremptory order, the butler led the way to the first floor. In an open doorway stood a gentleman whom Lupin recognized from his photograph in the papers as Baron Repstein, husband of the famous baroness and owner of Etna, the horse of the year. He was an exceedingly tall, square-shouldered man. His clean-shaven face wore a pleasant, almost smiling expression, which was not affected by the sadness of his eyes. He was dressed in a well-cut morning coat, with a tan waistcoat and a dark tie fastened with a pearl pin, the value of which struck Lupin as considerable. He took Lupin into his study, a large three-windowed room lined with bookcases, sets of pigeonholes, an American desk, and a safe, and he at once asked, with ill-concealed eagerness, Do you know anything? Yes, Monsieur le Baron. About the murder of that poor Lavenue. Yes, Monsieur le Baron, and about Madame la Baronne as well. Do you really mean it? Quick! I, I, I entreat you. He pushed forward a chair. Lupin sat down and began, Monsieur le Baron, the circumstances are very serious. I will be brief. Yes, do, please. Well, Monsieur le Baron, in a few words, it amounts to this. Five or six hours ago, Lavernue, who for the last fortnight has been kept in a sort of enforced confinement by his doctor, Lavernue, how should I put it, telegraphed certain revelations by means of signals which were partly taken down by me and which put me on the track of this case. He himself was surprised in the act of making this communication and was murdered. But by whom? By whom? By his doctor. Who is this doctor? I don't know. But one of Mr. Lavernue's friends, an Englishman named Hargrove, the friend, in fact, with whom he was communicating, is bound to know, and is also bound to know the exact and complete meaning of the communication, because, without waiting for the end, he jumped into a motor cab and drove to the prefecture of police. Why? And... and what was the result of that step? The result, Monsieur Le Baron, is that your house is surrounded. There are twelve detectives under your windows. The moment the sun rises, they will enter in the name of the law and arrest the criminal. Then, then is Lavenue's murderer concealed in my house? Who is he? One of the servants? But no, for you were speaking of a doctor. I would remark, Monsieur le Baron, that when this Mr. Hargrove went to the police to tell them of the revelations made by his friend Lavenue, he was not aware that his friend Lavenue was going to be murdered. The step taken by Mr. Hargrove had to do with something else. With what? With the disappearance of Madame la Baronne, of which he knew the secret, thanks to the communication made by Lavernue. What? They know at last. They've found the Baroness. Where is she? And the jewels, and the money she robbed me of. Baron Repstein was talking in a great state of excitement. He rose and, almost shouting at Lupin, cried, Finish your story, sir! I can't endure this suspense! 
Lupin continued in a slow and hesitating voice. Uh, the fact is, you see, it is rather difficult to explain, for you and I are looking at the thing from a totally different point of view. I don't understand. And yet you ought to understand, Monsieur le Baron. We begin by saying, I am quoting the newspapers, by saying, do we not, that Baroness Repstein knew all the secrets of your business and that she was able to open not only that safe over there, but also the one at the Crédit Lyonnais in which you kept your securities locked up. Yes? Well, one evening, a fortnight ago, while you were at your club, Baroness Repstein, who, unknown to yourself, had converted all those securities into cash, left this house with a traveling bag containing your money and all the Princess de Bernese jewels. Yes, and since then she has not been seen. No. Well, there is an excellent reason why she has not been seen. What reason? This, that Baroness Repstein has been murdered. Murdered? The Baroness? But... You're mad. Murdered, and probably that same evening. I tell you again, you're mad. How can the Baroness have been murdered when the police are following her tracks, so to speak, step by step? They are following the tracks of another woman. What woman? The murderer's accomplice. And who is the murderer? The same man who, for the last fortnight, knowing that Lavernu, through the situation which he occupied in this house, had discovered the truth, kept him imprisoned, forced him to silence, threatened him, terrorized him. The same man who, finding Lavernu in the act of communicating with a friend, made away with him in cold blood by stabbing him to the heart. The doctor, therefore. Yes. But who is this doctor? Who is this malevolent genius, this infernal being who appears and disappears, who slays in the dark, and whom nobody suspects? Can't you guess? No. And do you want to know? Do I want to know? Why, speak, man, speak! You know where he's hiding? Yes. In this house? Yes. And it is he whom the police are after? Yes. And I know him? Yes. Who is it? You! I? You! 